one who is faithful in the smallest matters is also faithful in much, and the one unjust in the smallest matters will likewise be unjust in much. So then, if you cannot be trusted with unjust wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? Luke chapter 16, verses 10 and 11. of counting the costs in last week's podcast too. A parable about a shrewd steward. What is the connection between these two and what is Messiah teaching us? Friends, welcome to Messiah in Life. Today we consider that shrewd steward that we read of in Luke chapter 16, the unjust steward. What is he up to? What is he doing? And why does it seem that Messiah is praising the actions of an unjust steward? Well, as we considered last week, the parables of decisions, counting the costs, the tower builder and the king going to war. Messiah teaches these parables to a great multitude who begin to follow him. But if we remember, Messiah was not attempting to build a following of people focused on numbers, but the following of people who are willing to sacrifice all in pursuit of the living God. Those who are willing to count the cost, those who are seeing the costliness of God's kingdom, but also the inestimable value of God's kingdom. The truth is that any sacrifice that we might endure will be more than compensated beyond our wildest imaginings by a loving God who is filled with grace and mercy. The joy that we receive in service to him is beyond all human comprehension. So this surrender, this surrender, one of the hardest things we learn to do in life is to surrender our lives, our actions to him. It doesn't mean we abandon those that we love and those that we need to support and respect. Quite the contrary, when we love him, as we should, first, principally, as the love of our life, the lover of our soul. We love those in our families, in our friends, in our networks, in our communities with a greater devotion and a greater care than we could have ever done before. Precisely because we've learned how to love them from the Lord God, who is love, who loves us. So we turn from that counting the cost, that devotion, to an unjust steward, to a shrewd steward, doing shady business practices. Let's read in Luke chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 1 and we'll conclude in verse 13. Now Yeshua was also saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a household manager. And this manager was accused of squandering his belongings. So he called the manager and said to him, What's this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What shall I do? 
since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm put out of management, others will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. And he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 units of olive oil. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred units of wheat. The manager said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now the master praised the crooked manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are smarter when dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of this world. So when it runs out, they will welcome you into the eternal shelters. One who is faithful in the smallest matters is also faithful in much, and the one unjust in the smallest matters will likewise be unjust in much. So then, if you cannot be trusted with unjust, unjust wealth, who will trust you with true wealth? Now, if you have not been trustworthy with what belongs to another, who will give you anything of your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will stick by one and look down on the other. You cannot serve God and money. This parable is perhaps one of the most perplexing, if not the most perplexing, parables that Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus spoke as it does appear that he is glorifying the actions of a shady business character, that shrewd steward. But the duties of the steward were clear. He, you know, he was to lease land, collect produce, keep records of transactions, receive income, pay out um, disbursements. The, shrew, the steward was acting uh, in a manner that was consistent with his authority as he would reduce the debt that was owed. He was acting within what was given to him as an authority. But he does so in a manner that makes you question, makes you wonder, and it's noted by the master. Hmm, look at what you've done here. So as we examine the parable, we have to remember that the context in which it was spoken helps us to understand and unpack it and apply it today. In Luke 15, 1 through 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, if you recalled, ridiculed Messiah because he was receiving tax collectors and sinners, people of ill repute. And as we know, Matthew was an example of that. Uh, Matthew, the gospel writer and disciple, he was a tax collector and tax collectors and sinners had become uh, disciples of Messiah as did some Pharisees and scribes. And as Luke introduces this parable, he notes that it was spoken to disciples. Now, I think I read the disciples when I read this, and that was a mistake on my part, because the it seems to imply the twelve. Um, no, no, it was to the disciples. But many scholars wonder if this was not also, I'm thinking out loud as I'm recording this, but um, many scholars do wonder as to whether or not <clears throat> this was spoken to a broader um, uh, 
a crowd of disciples rather than just the twelve. And I think some there's some variations in translation there. So, as he's introducing this, he's speaking this to disciples. Now, as I said, we can assume the twelve at a minimum, but it's most likely, I would assume that it was most likely speaking to that broader audience that now included tax collectors and sinners, people of the uh, labeled as people of ill repute, maybe even some Pharisees and scribes thrown in for good measure. Those who were continuing to listen, those who had heard about the cost of the kingdom, the cost of discipleship. Maybe they had stuck around at this point and were continuing to listen. And as shocking as the words of this parable are to us, Messiah's audience probably would have had a clearer picture of what he was explaining, especially when he said, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Luke 16, 8. Now, when Christians read Sons of Light, it's often assumed that Messiah is speaking of his disciples, his followers. Messiah says in John 12 and verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be become sons of light. Or, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. But context suggests something slightly different. That the words of Jesus regarding the sons of light in this verse are actually speaking of the, um, the, the community at the Dead Sea, the Essenes. And Dr. David Flusser, who was a leading expert on first century Judaism and the New Testament, came to this conclusion based on the context and kind of the the tension that existed between uh, the Judeans who still lived in Judea, the Galileans who still lived in Galilee, and the Essenes who had separated themselves from the, from the wider Jewish community. Dr. Brad Young, who studied under uh, uh, Dr. Flusser for his PhD, writes this, the policy of the Essenes was to confiscate all the financial holdings and personal belongings of their members. The covenanters of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which the consensus of scholars tend to identify with the Essenes, refer to the, themselves as the sons of light. Money belonging to those outside their community was deemed the manon of unrighteousness. When we read in light of, of Flusser's insightful suggestion, the parable reveals Jesus' opinion about the Essenes. The steward is like the sons of light, i.e. the Essenes, who are taking unfair advantage of the people. The children of this age are wiser than the Essenes, who require total financial investment in the community, cutting each, each member off from the outside world. When the unjust steward receives his actions, or excuse me, reverses his actions and starts helping the people he has been cheating, he should be praised. He has made a career out of exploiting his master's wealth and profiteering from overcharging his clients. With his own financial ruin on the horizon and the unbearable shame it will bring, he takes drastic measure to control the damage. In fact, although he is portrayed as the steward of unrighteousness from the beginning, 
because he has squandered his master's assets, his final action may actually have been legitimate in the eyes of the debtors, even if it was unethical and unjust. So some scholars suggest that the steward was canceling the commission that he would receive um, from both his master and his master's debtors. So he would receive a commission coming from each of them, essentially. And so they suggest that this is what he was actually canceling. So the unjust steward began to make this discount for his master's debtors and actually began to help someone other than himself. So if you recall the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector that Messiah called out in order to stay to his ho- stay in his house, Zacchaeus changed by this meeting. There was a there was a deep change, a deep repentance. There was um, a tremendous transformation of this man. He said to Messiah, "Look." Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. That's Luke 19 and verse 8. To which Messiah responds, today salvation has come to this house. That salvation that came to his house, that change that came to Zacchaeus, that deep inward reversal of the character and the person that he was, allowed him to make such a drastic change in his perspective regarding the currency of this world. I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything by usury or false accusation or I've doctored the books or whatever it is, I'm going to restore it fourfold, which is actually what we read of in the Torah. So the Essenes believed in this idea of double predestination meaning that you were either a son of light or a son of darkness, and there was no middle ground. So you were either all in or you were all out. And this designation was determined by the Lord before the individual was even born. So there was nothing that anyone could do to change the status of someone who was either a son of light or a son of darkness. So the sons of light must be separated completely from the sons of darkness. But who knows, even if those who are isolating themselves as the sons of light are a part of the sons of light. Are they a son of light or are they just a son of darkness hiding among those who are in the light? I mean, there's so many ways that you can look at the theology of the Essenes regarding this. The Pharisees, to a lesser degree, believed that as well. Some similar lines of thought, but... Uh, they did believe, of course, that there was a separation between the sinner and the saint, but they believed people could change and people could be changed. But they weren't necessarily willing to help in that endeavor by reaching out to the lost. So, someone could be changed, but it may, may not necessarily be my responsibility to help them change. I may not be part of that. I, I might be, I'll just be fine over here, and if you come and join me, that's okay. So the main focus of this parable is money and stewardship, but a proper use of both. See, when the Lord is your master, money becomes a means of reaching out, means of helping others, not a display of one's religiosity, 
but a means of demonstrating genuine care for the well-being of people in your community, in the world. See, the Essenes took the currency of their members, believing that it was good as compared to the currency of the outside community, but they cut themselves off from helping those outside of that very exclusive community. So why are the sons of this world more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light? Well, firstly, Messiah is speaking of those outside of the Essene community. This is a commentary and a criticism of what they are doing over there. They are more shrewd because through commercial and social endeavors, they interact with and reach out to those around them. They're doing acts of tzedakah, acts of charity. And that's what he is commending. They're still involved with the community. Yes, you have separated yourself, O sons of light. You have placed yourself in the caves of Qumran. You have set yourself out away from all this impurity. But you also cut yourself off from the living. So it's easy to have the appearance of being a a person of religious faith and piety when you've separated yourself from temptation and from people who are not, quote, like-minded. A person of faith, however, those who are faithing towards the Lord, those who are trusting in him, those who know they have received the deposit of grace that they're spread and to share, should be characterized by charity, characterized by good deeds, by tzedakah, by action in the world that is creating and benefiting and helping those who are less fortunate. And that be rewarded, not in this world necessarily, but in the world to come. So these are all traditional Jewish themes that are um, traditional Jewish uh, parabolic themes that are wrapped up in this one. Several different um, thematic um, pictures that are given to us. Money, stewardship. And that's what binds this interesting plot, this dramatic plot of the unjust steward together. So the, the manager was wasting his master's goods by really seeking to enrich himself at the expense of others. And the master was displeased with the steward's business practice, with what he was doing. And the steward is wasteful because he keeps the profit for himself. And it does not benefit anyone except him. But when he breaks with this type of conduct and gives away his master's wealth to the clients, he's then praised. He's actually praised for what he's doing. But hoarding money is viewed as wasting God's resources. But when that money is given to the master's clients, the master is not upset. He's pleased. And this is the perfect caricature of the sectarian children of light, the way the Essenes were frustrating divine purpose. They were isolating themselves. They were squandering. They were hoarding away. And the theme of stewardship is then picked up and developed in the application of the parable. So the underlying theme of the parable is that God's grace is unlimited. Yeshua does not want us to separate ourselves and to not care for for others or reached out to the lost. I mean, the Great Commission is go out into the world and make disciples. 
He wanted his followers. He wants his disciples to reach out to, to have contact with people outside of his movement. Just as they had been reached out to. If you are listening to this, someone reached out to you. You were at some point outside of God's community, but someone reached out from that community to you by the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit was wooing you to the Father himself. And the same is for me. Someone reached out to me. So, as we, when the Lord comes to settle our account, are we, I should say, when the Lord comes to settle our account, going to be found hoarding the grace that he has wanted to be freely distributed? Are we going to be found profiting from the grace that he's distributed to us? Or will he see how we have distributed the grace in a manner that blesses both he as the grace giver and the wider world and those who he's calling out of it that need it so much. So according to the words of Messiah Jesus spoken to repentant tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees waiting, you know, in the wings, wondering, listening attentively, you know, hoping to find some theological point to, you know, argue over, and perhaps scribes that were there waiting. The underlying message is that there is hope for everyone. Just as there is hope for, you know, we look at Matthew, the beautiful gospel of Matthew, a tax collector, worse, worse than a Roman, a worse uh, you know, viewed in a worse manner than a Roman who was occupying them was the tax collector who was stealing from them. But Matthew writes this incredible gospel account of Messiah because of the transformation that he experienced. Just as he said to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. I'm sure something similar was spoken in the house of Matthew. So Messiah applauds the unjust steward because he finally did what he was supposed to be doing all along. Treating people fairly, honestly, and with loving kindness. So we can't serve two masters. We cannot long for the things of this world and serve the purpose of the Lord. But we can use that which the Lord provides in this world to do his business in order to be about his business. So friends, I hope and pray that perhaps some of this was a little bit of illuminating to your understanding of this difficult parable in Luke 16. Admittedly, I was a bit tongue-tied today and there was a little bit of noise uh, in my studio today of a truck going by the... <laughs> as a truck goes by. But the message still is going out, and I hope and pray that that message has meaning for you in your life and your understanding of the Word of God, and I hope and pray that He will show you beautiful points that come from this to speak to you and to those around you and how to reach out to those who are in need of the gospel, to the glory of God, by the Son, and through 
the Spirit. So wherever you are in the world today, I hope and pray that you are blessed and that he richly blesses you to fulfill the purpose for which he has called you to in his kingdom, to his glory. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you in the mighty name of Messiah Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thank you.